BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. Back in 2017, in episode 167 of this show, I spoke to cardiologist Hedda Verreich, who had just written a book called Modern Death. It's a topic that we don't talk about nearly as much because, well, who wants to think about their own mortality? But one that is incredibly important, since, of course, we're all going to get there and we're all going to have our loved ones get there. And maybe we can make that passage a little less difficult. I really liked his book. And then a couple years later, in 2019, when his second book, State of the Heart, came out, I found I learned so much more about what we know about how our heart functions, how well we can treat heart disease, and all of the strides that medicine has made in that domain. But when it comes to medicine, there's another topic that really is pretty baffling, and that's pain. We don't really have a biomarker for pain. I can't really tell how much pain you're in unless you tell me about it. And then what do I know? Are you the kind of person that exaggerates or minimizes? The subjective nature of pain is one of the reasons why we have a lot of inequalities in the way that people are treated by the medical system. It's also the cause of a lot of human suffering. And so it's kind of amazing that we don't understand it as well as you'd think we would. I mean, just recently, there was a Nobel Prize awarded to scientists who had discovered a little bit more about the kinds of receptors that track pain. So it didn't surprise me that an author who tackled death and then the complexity of the human heart would also take a stab at pain. Heather Verreich is a physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the VA Boston Healthcare System. And he's an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. Heather Verreich, welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much for having me uh, on the show again. It's a, what a pleasure. You know, I remember the very first time I got State of the Heart and I thought, oh, here's a, here's a, here's a young new physician writer. And I was just really impressed with, with the book and I learned so much and, you know, just about how well we are now able to deal with problems of the heart and you're a cardiologist. So that made sense. 
that, you know, you would be the one to tell the story really well. And then out came your second book, Modern Death. And once again, I was really impressed with how you took a topic that we are all familiar with, made it poetic, made it interesting, made it something that we wanted to read about, which generally most people don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about death. <laughs> but, you know, you, you know so, so we talked about that. And now you've written a book called The Song of Our Scars, which, by the way, is a great title, um, The Untold Story of Pain, another topic most of us tend not to want to think about. And once again, I feel like you, any one of those books could have been just a masterpiece. And I feel like once again, you've captured something remarkable. So, you know, I just want to say first off that, you know, I am now a solidified fan of yours. And I really feel that you are, you are um, going to be going down in the annals of one of the great physician writers. Well, I really appreciate it, and uh, you know, it's been it's been really, really fun and interesting. And honestly, all this writing has really just made me a much better physician, a better teacher, a better researcher. So, if anything, it hasn't really distracted me from my clinical work. I think, if anything, it's made me much just a better physician, more attentive, more curious, more interested, and uh, and so it's a it's a great sort of feedback loop in some ways. Wow. I mean, I, I I wasn't at all concerned about how good you were <laughs> as a physician, <laughs> but I'm sure that's absolutely true. You know, but what, what I have to say, though, I got a copy of your book and I was facing the prospect of shoulder surgery to repair an injury that I had skiing. And that's been a, a lifelong struggle with. We have unstable shoulders in my family. And I had always heard that this surgery is really painful. I mean, the dislocation while skiing was incredibly painful, uh, probably more so even than, you know, childbirth, which I've gone through. It just was a different type of pain. And it was very, very scary and frightening. And so I did not want to read your book <laughs> because I was so worried about the surgery. And I have to say, like, now I can't put it down, even though I'm experiencing a lot of pain. Because it's teaching me so much about the process of going through through pain. And so I want to start with kind of this question, this idea of like, just give us an overview of the shift that's happened in terms of how we think about pain, you know, maybe across the last hundred years, or you know, however far back you want to go to, to sort of ground us in what really pain is. Like, what are we talking about here? You know, pain in many ways is probably the first thing a you know baby experiences every time they're born, and you know, unfortunately, may might for many it's the last thing that they ever experience before the lights go out, and um, it's been uh, really constant for us, not just for us as human beings, but really even a even a single cell needs to have some sort of mechanism to detect threats or dangers in the environment. And over time, that has evolved to what we feel and what we call pain. And and really, the, the how we think about pain as human beings has re gone through a really a roller coaster ride, if you may. Pain, for example, has often always been this kind of window to the divine and the supernatural and the metaphysical that connects human beings to a greater force. Oftentimes, that force is, is God. Oftentimes, when people hurt, was there was a reason that they hurt. It was a way for the divine to deliver a message, whether it was a message of growth or absolution or punishment would depend on what culture you were in. So, you know, for example, 
if you look at tradition, the pain of childbirth was a punishment for Eve's transgression in the Garden of Eden. So the, the, the experience of pain was a punishment and trying to find a way out of it was in some ways trying to cut your sentence without the consent of God. In other cultures, pain has often been a sort of a, a, a way to develop the soul, to make it stronger, to show, show character in some ways. And that's why I think we still have this idea of, oh, if you have a higher pain tolerance, that you are just a stronger character, you're just a stronger person. So, so it's never really just been something that your body is, you know, feeling like a purely physical sensation, like, for example, like seeing something with your eyes or hearing something with your ears. I mean, those things are not, do not have the same type of political, gendered, spiritual dimension that pain has had through our history. And as we understood the body better, as we developed new therapies for diseases like you know, infections, tuberculosis, you know, cancer, heart disease, etc. There was also a desire to, well, what about pain? How, you know, pain is the most common reason after all people come to seek medical care. Why don't we develop a, why don't we, we develop a so, supposed cure for pain? But what that necessitated was that medicine then took pain, which had always been like this amorphous, all-encompassing experience into a purely physical sensation that uh, as as physical as, say, what your blood pressure is or what your heart rate is, because our tools were only good for those types of things. The tools that medicine had were very, very good for physical, quote-unquote, physical sensations. In fact, it, it was like we had to morph pain into the definition that will work for our tools, primitive as they may be. Really uh, shifting the way that we've thought about pain from uh, to something that was you know, a, a mechanical disturbance in your body that needed to be overcome, therefore, with a mechanical solution or a pharmacologic solution, um, i.e., painkillers. And this was this was this was formalized in medicine. You know, when I was a medical resident, and this is how pain was taught to me. Uh, it was, you know, in some ways, pain was positioned as a fifth vital sign, in addition to heart rate, blood pressure, temperature. And yet we have seen that that whole approach has failed. It's been a, a complete and utter disaster and tragedy because in some ways, this notion of treating pain as a purely physical sensation. And the other mistake we made was conflating acute pain, so the sort of pain you're having right now, to chronic pain and just basically saying that, oh, these are the same thing. A chronic pain is just a extension of acute pain. I think that's really led us to a place where that was a trigger for, for example, the opioid epidemic, because we felt that, oh, if, you know, pain is just a physical sensation, if it's some, and chronic pain is the same as acute pain, why don't we just treat both the same way? We give opioids for acute pain, and they are very, very effective for acute pain. Why don't we do the same thing for chronic pain? Why don't we treat pain the same way as we would say someone's elevated blood pressure, for example? And that whole shift actually led to the opioid epidemic is pretty well documented. But also what it did was that it constrained our understanding of pain. It, it took us back in, in, a, in a way that few things have regressed in science the way our understanding of pain has. Where I think that our, the ancient people of the, our, our, our ancestors actually were probably more spot on when it came to their understanding of pain. Then I think what the understanding of modern, in, at least in modern uh, public understanding of pain, is actually in some ways less accurate than what we used to have for pretty much our entire history. So it's been a roller coaster ride for sure.
I mean, I think one of the most interesting insights that you say early on, I mean, for one thing, the, the idea that a child is born and the first thing that they experience as pain to me was was revelatory. And the idea that like consciousness and pain are closely tied together, right? Because it's not like, yeah, it's not if you just had a reflex where you could pull your limb away from something that is damaging it, but it doesn't actually give you the conscious subjective experience of pain. That's a very different experience. That's a very different sentience. But one of the other things that that comes out of that and what you've, you know, what the way that you've laid out this kind of history of how we understand pain sets up is that this idea that it's, you know, we think of it as something that is isolating. It's my pain. I own it. I can only, I'm the only person who can tell you how much pain I'm in. I mean, every day I have to fill out a little thing about like, what is my pain rating? And the the anesthesiologist asked me, you know, do you want a nerve block or do you want some other way to manage pain? But my surgeon didn't say, hey, which ligament do you think I should reattach? <laughs> like, do you want this one or this one? And I'm sure there were decisions to be made, but I was no part of that, you know? So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of this sense that pain is not individual, even though we all see it and talk about it that way. That's really one of the notions I wanted to you know, gently push back against. Uh, pain is so personalizing. It is so tied, as you've already mentioned, to our sense of who we are as people, who, what our conscious experiences. And pain is really, I think, the window into understanding what consciousness is. But it has this, it has this, there's this powerful internal narrative that pain tells us is that what we feel, no one else can feel. Because, yet, if you look at why we hurt, we hurt for many different reasons. We hurt so that we learn. We, we hurt because we want to be better at surviving threats in our environment. Um, whether, you know, if you, you know, want, pain is what tells uh, my daughter not to touch the hot skillet. Maybe anything I say will not be as effective as, you know, what that hot skill is going to teach her. And because human beings now live for so long, I mean, human beings are some of the longest living organisms out there. So we have to remember that experience for a very long time, which is why pain is so strongly tied to memory, because it, you just, you can't forget that hot skillet. You can't forget that feeling you get when you accidentally, you know, shove something in an electrical socket. You, you need to be able to remember it. And it might be the only thing you remember by, by the end. But one of its chief things also is communication. If you are a bear stuck in a bear trap, the, the bear will will howl and yell. It also not only uh, to to tell other bears that there is a bear trap here and it hurts and you know be careful, or that I need help. I need you to come and help me get out of this bear trap. And that is very very true for human beings as well. Pain behaviors are something that are extremely consistent. Through both within species and across species. In fact, behavior is the only way we can even perform animal research because an animal won't tell us that, oh, I'm having searing pain. It's like a knife stabbing me, or it's like seven out of 10 on this, you know, point scale, or I'm a sad face on the sort of smiley chart. It's <laughs> another great way to ask people for pain. They'll act it out. They will act it out. And, and scientists have developed scales for every animal that can grade what certain behaviors, what, what intensity of pain are, is consistent with a certain behavior. And, and so pain is not just, and in fact, the reason, and because so many of us have pain and because it's, it is the, one of its core measures is for it to be expressed, for it to be communicated, that is one reason why I wanted to write the book. 
the reason I wanted to write it so that people don't feel like they're the only ones who felt that. Because guess what? You know, when I had this terrible back injury and I was curled up in my dorm room, that's what I felt. I felt that no one else knows how I feel. No one knows what this pain means to me. No one knows what it is doing to my body, especially because it was invisible. I didn't have, you know, I didn't have a big scar on my back. I didn't have like this, you know, bone sticking out of my leg. I looked fine. I looked perfectly fine. And yet I was in so much agony. And that's really one of the things that pain does is that that's, but, but, but I don't think it's true. I actually think that the opposite is true, where I think pain does unite us because all of us hurt in more or less the same way. What place it has in our life might be different. What context it plays in our autobiographies might differ for, you know, for, uh, for a black man who's been racially discriminated against versus me, or, or a woman whose pain has been underestimated or ignored uh, versus uh, someone else. So yes, pain has a different role to play in all of our lives, but how it makes us feel, what it does to us, how much it can sort of control or constrain us is, I think, something that is very, very universal. And it is time that we start talking about it more rather than act as if pain is something that escapes language, which some people have suggested in the past. It also underscores the fact that, you know, yes, I, I can't tell what it is that you are experiencing. And, and if the pain is a measure of the extent of injury, then only you can tell me sort of what what that that measure is. But also, you know, one of the things I think a lot of us have have recognized and, and that you write about is that, like, who's in the room, how you're being treated, the context affects, like, I would almost argue, like, 80% maybe of the actual subjective experience is related to the context and or the fear. So like, for example, when the shoulder first came out, I was in a lot of pain. And when I felt alone and that I couldn't get down the mountain by myself and there was no help, it shot through the roof and I started to panic. And then as soon as Ski Patrol came, I mean, they didn't do anything. I begged them to put the shoulder back in. They wouldn't. They didn't do anything. And my pain fell by orders of magnitude until, and then there was all these little moments where they were like, okay, now you have to get into the sled. And I was like, well, don't you put me in the sled? How am I going to get into the sled? And then the pain shut up again. And, you know, it was just this weird thing where it was like, you know, the actual physical injury was the same. And maybe you could argue, well, as you were moving it, it was hitting some nerve or something. But I don't think so. I think it was a matter of like how my brain was interpreting the situation. Is this something that I can now relax into because I'm going to be okay? Or like, am I still in a lot of danger? I mean, if you look at the, if you, and this is borne out throughout the book and in the research, but you know, one of the parts of the brain that seems to be very involved with the experience of pain is the amygdala. And the amygdala is where all of our fears live. And for most people, the, the connection between pain and fear is so tight. And, and for a good reason, because that, that is a chief function of pain is to make you be so, so, so afraid and so, so, so fearful that, you know, if you've, if you've fractured your arm I mean, or, or you, you know, dislocated your shoulder, the pain is there to tell you that, hey, stop it, stop moving it, yeah. right? Because you can make it so right. much worse, right? And, and that's, is, that, is one of, that is why it is so adaptive. That's why pain is one of those things that not only has been preserved across species, but in fact has been enhanced in species. So the more advanced a species is, the more deeper an ability it has to hurt, not just hurt, but also to suffer, which is why I think humans have this additional layer of their interpretation of pain, which, which is really you know, what we call suffering, 
that you know probably no other species has and and it is and i think that is what i often deal with when i have patients who are in pain so you know we have folks who come in with say chest pain and they think they're having a heart attack but you know as soon as they learn and and in in, in cardiology we have we're lucky because we actually have a blood test that can show if there's any ongoing damage to the heart so we can actually tell people with a lot of certainty that oh you know i know you're having chest pain and i know you, it's it's really painful but i don't want you to worry because we have no evidence that you're having a heart attack and I, and i i can't tell you how therapeutic just that knowledge is because at that moment you break or you can fracture the fear that people have with what they're experiencing or in their body yet for most pain we don't have anything like that right we don't have a blood test that could have told you in that moment oh is your is your shoulder ever going to be okay again how are you going to be a person again how are you going to use your arm again i mean how are you going to get out of this situation that you're in right now there we have no blood test for for that and i think for a lot of scientists i think for a lot of people i think that is you know they just throw their hands up they say oh there's no test for it it's subjective it's and and that's seen as somehow an essential component of our ability to take care of it but i would i would push back I think what people feel and what their subjective experiences is as as important as essentially any other objective metric that we have but because medicine has moved so much towards the you know finding the broken bone on the x-ray or finding the inflamed appendix on the ct scan or that we rely so much on objective tests now that anything that falls outside of it we just kind of throw our hands up and we say I don't know what we can do about you or I don't know how we can help you anymore and that's really where we can't help people kind of extricate their fear from pain and i think that's going to be as we move forward and think forward about well how are we going to help people in pain finding ways to break that when it's appropriate is going to be one of the most important things you know it 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 reminds me of of kind of you know the stigma associated with something that is quote unquote psychogenic so if it you know if it supposedly comes from the mind not the brain because that's biological and we can figure it out we can trace it and do an mri if it's psychological then somehow you know it's off limits for traditional medicine or or what have you and yet if you think about it to a, to a, a given a, a extent anesthesia is really uh, treating something psychogenically because what you're doing is you're not just putting the person to sleep you are erasing their memory of what happened there are all these ways in which like the tools that anesthesiologists use really do act on the psychological components of the experience not adjust you know whether the person is conscious or not and and take something like hypnosis for example there 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 randomized control trials in which people were were basically trained to self hypnotize themselves before they got procedures versus people got painkillers like opioids etc and people who had hypnosis had lesser pain and they actually the procedure went more quickly and they had less pain after the fact as well and you know i think whenever someone is in pain like i was and like so many others are I think they dread hearing this phrase so much the, the 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 all in your head phrase because it instantly erases their personhood it instantly erases their legitimacy as human being because it implies that what they feel does not matter because it is in the quote unquote mind and yet the research is is very very clear that especially more so for chronic pain than acute pain that the mind plays a huge role a, a very substantial role in how we experience 
suffering, how we suffer, how we feel. And in at least in the scientific community, this is actually not a controversial idea. But the reason and you know, people are so worried about this is because they know what happens when things are assigned to the mind rather than the body, because instantly no one cares about them, especially doctors, especially the health system stops caring about things because they're like, oh, they're just crazy. There's just in their mind. There's nothing wrong with them. And yet it is in the mind that I think that some of our most promising therapies for chronic pain lie. I mean, most of the therapies that we give even now for pain, don't, don't actually work on your body. Like if, if someone gets an opioid, for example, and they have severe back pain, it's actually not working on their back. It's, it's working on their minds uh, to, to change how that sensation is experienced. And the, the physical sensation that people experience from something that is injurious or noxious is called nociception. The nociception is the sort, of the, the sort of technical term for any type of noxious signal. Let's say you have a I, I have a sharp or sort of injury to my shoulder. Uh, someone's, let's say, stabbed me with a uh, with a safety pin, and, and that that sensation that travels from my shoulder up to my brain, that's called nociception, and that's where the brain will interpret it as pain. It will and it'll bring in all sorts of things to shape what that experience is like. Well, let's say that pin was actually not a pin. It was like I was getting a booster shot, for example. And let's say I actually like vaccines and I'm a I'm pro-vaccine, which I am. I won't jump, right? I won't react to it as if, but if it, if let's say I've had some type of trauma in the past, let's say I've, I've been sexually abused in the past, that same type of sensation may hold a totally different meaning. It may have totally different interpretation in my mind in that moment. And that is not to minimize the sensation. None of this is should be used as a way to say, oh, it's in the mind. It doesn't matter. In fact, it matters as much. And and this whole idea that the mind and the body are separate is is totally made up. It's it's if anything, I think that's what really I wanted to address in this book is this this idea of symptoms being subjective or objective or things being real or fake or in your body or in your mind. Is such an archaic idea, and yet we keep doing this. We, we, we not only have we done this with folks in, with chronic pain, we, we're now going to do the same thing with people with long COVID because we're going to be we're going to put people on this wild goose chase for this magic diagnosis, a, a blood test, a, a, an imaging scan, or something that 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 will light up somehow and give people meaning. And yet, a diagnosis should not be, I think. Or at least a or, or or a traditional diagnosis should not be a, the only way that people can gain legitimacy in our health system or in our sci- in our scientific sort of approach to to how people suffer and 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 I really hope that 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 we can reclaim all in your mind all in your head or all in your mind as as not a slur not as a way to degrade but as a way to sort of show just how complex what we feel is. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And I think the other mistake that we sometimes make is now in the last 10 years is that we blame the physicians. You know, they were the ones that prescribed the opioid pills. They were the ones who didn't worry about, you know, figuring out how to how to titrate down after the person, you know, finishes their their regimen and they got people addicted and sent them. And, you know, there is a there is a history of black people in particular being, you know, undertreated for pain, black mothers dying in, in you know, much bigger numbers during childbirth for various reasons. But what you also have just suggested in terms of um, like the hypnosis as an example, there's also a sense that, you know, like it's hard for me to hear that because I think, well, if I was just better at hypnosis or meditation, maybe I wouldn't have had to take so many opioid pills when I was when I was recovering from surgery or like, you know, maybe. Yeah. Or when I you know, when I was giving birth, maybe I could have, you know, avoided, uh, you know, some of the pain or or the drugs because I, I could have been more mentally strong and mentally fit. And I'm sure that there is a way in which that kind of mentality also permeates differently in different cultures, where for some cultures, it's going to you know, have a more meaning or, or a different meaning than in others. And so I wonder if you can talk a little bit about sort of where we should be going with this understanding so that we don't gaslight people, we don't ignore what they are saying, we empower them, but at the same time, we then don't take a particular group of people and and make it harder for them than it already is. So what I would say to that is that I don't think that there is any inherent value in pain. That there is, you know, I, I think that there's some things that uh, other cultures do get right. But I don't see a specific, some type of special fuzzy value in the experience of pain. Like a road to enlightenment. You, you don't see it as a road to understanding yourself better or a road to enlightenment. I do not. I do not. I don't fe- believe that we should go back to time and let just people have be in pain. And that's it. We just shrug our shoulders and move on. I don't think that that's the case either. I also push back on this phrase that people say that, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, if that was the case, people with chronic pain or people who have pain all the time would have much higher thresholds for pain. And yet what we see is actually the opposite. People with chronic pain, at research studies suggest, do not have higher thresholds. If anything, they end up having lower thresholds for pain, probably because they become hypervigilant. They're just worried about what they feel might be different. They're just overanalyzing their body because they're, they're, they're in some ways at war with their body or their bodies are at war with them. So I don't think that there's any specific value to the pain itself. But what I do think is really, really important is shifting our focus. And this is borne out by this approach called acceptance theory, uh, therapy. You know, when you're in pain, there there's so many things that you worry about doing. Like when I was in pain, I didn't want to go to the beach, you know, with my friends because I was like, I would just rather just lie here and not be in pain and just 
you know, or or be vulnerable in front of them or miserable in front of them. I would rather just be lie down in this position in my room doing nothing rather than put myself in a position where I could hurt a lot and I would be uncertain and I wouldn't be in control of what was going on. And I would rather control the pain at all costs. And because that's what pain wants you to do. It, it wants you to minimize it because it is so scary because it feels like if you don't, then you are hurting yourself or you're going to hurt your body and make it put it in even worse shape. And what acceptance ther- therapy wants people to do is they it it wants people to change their focus to living their life to the fullest despite the pain. So it essentially mean that I should go to the, that beach party because even though I won't be in pain, at least my, my life wouldn't shrink. And that it is okay to be in pain somewhat if it allows you to do the things you love doing, if it's making that birthday or going to... Um, you know, watch a movie, even though you have to, you know, sit in one space for, you know, several hours. And what that therapy has does, and it's been shown in randomized trials, is that people, quality of life improves over time, and how what people are able to do improves over time. And, 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 and even, even though they may still feel like they're still in pain, what they're able to do and their lives and everything else that kind of blossoms for it expands to a great degree. Because, you know, one of the things that chronic pain does, and I spoke to, you know, an anthropologist, Drew Leader, and who himself has lived, has had chronic pain himself. And a lot of his research found a lot of parallels between people with chronic pain and people who are prisoners. Because that's essentially what chronic pain does, is that it confines you physically because you know, I wrote this, but you know, one of the scariest sort of things for me was uh, was a staircase because <laughs> I just just the thought of having to go up on it just was just so scary to me. So it limits your physical space, and then it really sort of fractures your sense of time because you know, when I thought about myself before I got hurt, I couldn't relate to that person. That person had no idea how lucky he was. He had no idea that he should have been more careful with his body. He took his health for granted and, and then he put him and, and he had no idea of what this type of suffering or, ag- suffering or agony could look like. He was, you know, he, you know, I remember when I had other friends or uh, who had chronic pain issues, I would just poo-poo them. I just didn't, you know, they looked fine and they were young. And I said, well, you don't fit the stereotype of someone with who has some type of crippling illness. So, so chronic pain divorces you or sort of fractures you from your past. It, it takes away your future because, you, you know, I wanted to be a physician. I was still in medical school when I got hurt. I wanted to be a physician. I had all these thoughts and dreams. And suddenly I didn't even know if I could finish medical school because I couldn't do anything. And so it puts you in the spot where you want to be the least, which is the present. And so you're tied to it in a way that, that you're in like this unloving, hateful relationship with that moment and with that place. And that's really one of the things that we need to work on more is how do we give people the keys out of this prison? How do we understand and empathize with what folks with chronic pain are living through or going through and really sit down and talk about it, but also think creatively about, well, how do we allow them to live their life? How do we develop a culture that's rooted in kindness and empathy and connectedness that can help people get out of this, these, sort of these self-perpetuating states? Because those states make the pain worse, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle. And, and I think that that's where having a broader understanding of pain Rather than simply, oh, this is just something that's, you know, this is just two bones grating against each other. No, it's it's way, way, way beyond that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what what you're talking about in this this being stuck in the, a prisoner of the present is such an interesting I- idea, and it it reminds me of a conversation I had with a few music therapists who work specifically with people with sickle cell disease. And for our listeners who who might not be familiar, one of the tragic aspects of sickle cell disease is that you have these pain flare ups. They start in childhood. They increase in you know frequency and severity often throughout adulthood. And there's no biomarker for it. You know, you, 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 the person just describes what, what the pain feels like. And some of these descriptions are, are incredibly graphic and, and the suffering um, seems really extensive. And it, it makes sense to me in, in, in a way that um, music therapy might work because music therapy is a way of, of grounding you in the moment, but also, you know, changing the way that you experience a moment to moment by, you know, expanding and contracting time and, you know, also giving you this kind of reward and ability to express emotion. So I wonder if you might want to talk a little bit about sort of some of the, I mean, we talked a little bit about hypnosis, a little bit of acceptance theory, but in terms of the directions that you hope medicine goes now, or, or is it, you know, should pain management be uh, part of the domain of medicine? Or should it be the domain of the arts or, you know, some something else? I mean, what do you think about some of these future directions that hold promise? Yeah, so, you know, one of the one of the sort of most historic figures in pain medicine was this guy named John Bonica. John was, uh, his parents were born, he and his parents were born in Sicily, moved to New York, and was, you know, early on thrust into the role of being essentially the uh, the breadwinner for his family was an amateur wrestler so on the side while he was in medical school and and so had you know his own sort of experience of having a you know bunch of broken bones and whatnot became an anesthesiologist and then but 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 essentially formed the field of pain medicine while he was working in the west coast and he was taking care of all these veterans from the korean war but his goal and his model of pain medicine was rooted in interdisciplinary management, which by itself, what that means is that if you are a, or you as a patient go for pain, especially chronic pain, you're not just seen by a surgeon. You're not just seen by someone who provide who does specific procedures or you're not seen by someone who will give you medicines or opioids. But you'll also be seen by a psychologist. You'll be seen by an exercise therapist. You'll be seen, there, there'll be resources for hypnosis and acupuncture and whatnot, whatever. Because pain isn't, what you know, one of the things that I've learned is that there is no one silver bullet for pain. And the reason for that is that pain is different from almost everything else that I think we think about in medicine. Because almost everything else we think about in medicine are diseases. Pain is not a disease. Pain is a normal function of your body. So you can't really eliminate it without having you know, all sorts of collateral damage. And um, we know this because people who don't feel pain actually live shorter lives and actually are more likely to die sooner. But this idea of interdisciplinary pain management was respected the nature of pain as being extremely complex and not something that you could just, you know, play whack-a-mole with. And that, that whole model went away. And one of the reasons that it went away was because giving opioids was faster and doing procedures made more money. So you could either do something that was super fast and that could give people, you know, relief in the acute sense that, you know, as soon as you take an opioid, you're going to feel better. And it's not just because your pain is better. It's just because opioids are the reason we feel happiness, joy, love. All these sensations are tied to this endogenous opioids that we all carry. You know, the feeling that a mother has when they hold their child 
is because of these endogenous endorphins that that our body produces to give us that feeling. So opioids will give you all of that, but then it will they will also completely suppress your body's ability to to create those endogenous opioids themselves, which is why so many people who have opioids over a long period of time, their ability to be happy, their ability to be normal, their ability to actually just deal with the everyday uh, nicks and cuts and bruises, it takes it all away. So, so our system became either something, but instead of doing the research and doing and studying whether opioids were as good for chronic pain as they are for acute pain, we just started to give people opioids without ever doing any testing. And a lot of it was because there were all these corporate interests that were pushing medicine in that direction. And then there are procedures which, you know, for the most part, if you look at, I mean, there's a meta-analysis that I cite quite often, which looks at all the medicine, all the procedures that have been performed for chronic pain, in which there was a sham placebo as well. So for people who don't know, in clinical trials, in randomized trials, if you have a if you have a trial for, say, a medicine, you can give a placebo pill. But well, what do you do if you have a procedure, in that case, sometimes some trials will do what are called sham procedures. So for example, for an knee repair, they'll just put a needle in your um, face. They won't really give you any medicine. It'll look and sound like you're getting a procedure, but you won't know. So those procedures are no better than sham placebo procedures. So, so, so much of the effect that we get from pills and from procedures is all because of placebo. But instead of thinking of the placebo effect as just necessarily bad or as some type of trick that our mind plays, I think if you start exploring it, I think it gives us a valuable lesson. The, the reason we experience a placebo effect is really because of the medical experience that we undergo. You know, seeing a patient, seeing a physician or seeing a nurse and them telling, them showing concern, them showing empathy, them showing, uh, acting in a way that we believe strongly that they will help us is the reason we experience a placebo effect. And one of the reasons, and the more and so the, the, I think in some ways what I hope medicine will learn from this is that we need to think about, well, how can we as physicians or how can we as nurses enhance our placebogenic effect? Because how can we enhance people's own ability or in their own bodies to help themselves rather than be only dependent on external factors, which again serves medicine because it essentially establishes a client relationship with the person in agony. Yet what it doesn't do, it doesn't it doesn't empower people to really sort of find solutions to their suffering within themselves. It makes them entirely dependent on us. And over time what's happened, especially in the United States, is that people's response to placebo in this country is a more than it is in any other country. And it's actually increased over time. And I think what it shows is that over time, the American, average American's belief that a pill, any pill will help them has gone higher, which shows how successful medical marketing has been or how, how much people are look to physicians for help, for alleviation of their suffering. And so how can we do better? And I think one thing that we can do and that we really need, especially for people with chronic pain, is to find ways of incorporating empathy and kindness in our approach. Now, you know, I think empathy is a word that's thrown around quite a bit, but especially with regards to pain, it has a real biological footprint. Because when we see someone in pain, so if I see a video of someone getting 
hitting their head with a hammer, the initial reaction that I get, the parts of the brain that light up are the same as it would as if I was getting hit in the face with a hammer. And this is not just true with human beings, it's true with other with mice, it's true with other animals. So so empathy is something that is a real scientific phenomenon. And unfortunately, we tend to be most empathetic for people who look most like us. So if you if I see an animal, I might be less empathetic. If I see a robot, I might be less empathetic. But if I see a person, I will be more empathetic. But then what my relationship is with that person will change how I respond to them. Whether they belong to the same group that I'm in, whether they support the same football team, whether they speak the same language, and and sadly, whether they have the same skin color that I have, also affects how much empathy I feel for that person. And unfortunately, chronic pain is a condition because it breaks the rules of medicine, because there's oftentimes there's no diagnosis and, and patients are, there's no lab test or th- these patients demand more of their physicians and nurses with regards to empathy than almost any other condition. And that's really where I hope that we can go towards about centering our practice in empathy and kindness for people who suffer and thinking about how can we do better in scientific ways, in in ways that we can reproduce, in ways that we can train the next generation in which we can change practice so that we have a we have force of of folks who are physicians and nurses who are armed to the teeth with empathy. Because I think that that is really the root of what we are seeing here with regards to how bad the situation has become for patients with chronic pain. So I want to remind our listeners that Heather Verreich's uh, book, The Untold Story of Pain, The Song of Our Scars, is now available at booksellers everywhere. I wanted to end on this kind of extension of this idea of, of empathy and the burden it actually places on the physicians, the clinicians. Um, so when I finally got to the, the clinic and they did the x-rays, which I was like, please just put the shoulder in. Don't worry about the x-rays. I can I can tell you it's out. I don't, <laughs> but no, they, you know, all that. And then finally, I saw the the doctor and, you know, it turns out he was this like handsome young man. So, of course, there's like all this projection and, you know, he's he's going to save me now from this pain. You know, and I said to him, please, can I just have some painkillers? And he said, well, do you want the painkillers or do you want me to put your shoulder back in? And I mean, I chose the shoulder putting back in, of course. But I also felt like I actually put a burden on him that in some ways was unfair because I was asking, begging him to take care of my pain. And it puts him in a position where he had to choose between giving me opioids, which would prolong the extent to which I would be in pain, but make me feel better, or put the shoulder back in, um, which would would inflict more pain immediately, but lead to relief. And so I just wonder if you could speak to sort of, you know, are we putting a burden that is just untenable on our physicians in terms of what we are asking them to do as we put more and more of our faith into them? I think that in many ways, modern medicine has, you know, has has always talked a big game and many times they've been able to back that up. mRNA vaccines, for example, like less than a year, amazing, right? I mean, who would have thought? And yet there are many spaces in which we have overpromised and we just can't deliver. Uh, and these, these are spaces that I've, you know, end of life care, for example, is one. We, we, we told people that, that everyone will have a good death. 
No, that's not the everyone will live forever. That's not the case. And I think that we also overpromised and said that no one's going to feel pain again. And we're all going to live in mass anesthesia. And I think that that's just not something that we'll be able to do, or maybe that's not even something we should be aiming for. And and I think that the burden is now. I think we are at fault for creating that expectation that we will be able to solve all of humanity's. We we you mean the medical profession? The medical profession, correct. But so so what we have to do in the future, I think, is to recalibrate that expectation and find better ways of living with pain. And I know that. Maybe not everyone wants to hear that, especially people who are suffering, people who um, who are extremists. But I think there is comfort in finding ways that pain, even though it exists and even though it 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 hurts and it it constrains, that we can find ways to live our lives despite our bodies being in pain. Because I just don't see another way going forward. Yeah, I think that's really good advice because I do think that that's something that, you know, pain, suffering. And as you mentioned, there are lots of religions that see suffering as the road to salvation. Um, and and so, you know, we have to sort of maybe change our relationship to a certain extent and our expectations if we want to avoid some of the most damaging aspects of the opioid crisis and so on. Heather, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds once again. And I look forward to yet another groundbreaking book a couple of years from now. <laughs> I appreciate you uh, inviting me. And uh, it's always so much fun uh, chatting with you. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of the show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Cheng, Sean Johnson, Jordan Miller, Kyle Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Awal, Dale LaMaster, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. This episode was edited by Daniel Link. And I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. See you next time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.